Somebody sang parts on that last one, and that was so nice. That's a glorious uh, truth. That should never seek to amaze us that the sovereign God of the universe has loved us sinners. He has loved us with an everlasting love chosen in His Son before the foundation of the world to know Him and to receive the blessings and the benefits of salvation and redemption that He accomplished for us through the cross. Paul prayed for the Ephesians that they would grasp the fullness and the depths, the height, the breadth, uh, the length and the depth of the glory of God's love for us, that we might be filled up to His fullness, the fullness of God. So that is a worthy thing to sing of and to pray for. Let's go to Him in prayer now before we open His Word and prepare our hearts for His table. Father, we thank You for... Not only the song, but the reality behind the song, for that is what gives it substance. It is you and your love for us in Christ, <clears throat> excuse me, in Christ that has redeemed us, that has put into our heart a joy, uh, that has put into our heart a desire to lean on you and rest in you and trust in you, to walk faithfully with you in this life, longing to be with you forever in your presence in the new heavens and the new earth, in a resurrected body. That is our end, and we long for it. We thank you that you have given us your word, which reveals your power and your majesty and your glory to us. We pray now that as we open it and look briefly at this last section in Matthew chapter 22, our Lord, your interaction with these Pharisees and these other leaders and among the crowds, that you would teach us, that you would, by the Spirit, open our eyes and our minds to receive your glory and to respond with trust and worship and praise. Something they were unwilling to do, but we pray that by your grace you have made our hearts willing and you have made your glory clear to us. And that's what we long for this morning. And so we commit ourselves to you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. We're coming this morning, obviously, as you open up there, you'll see, to the end of this chapter. And we're going to end this chapter with a magnificent statement about the glory of Christ. And as glorious as this revelation of Christ is, not only in this section, but Everything that we've seen in his life and that we do read about in Scripture, it is a glory that is veiled, it is hidden to the minds of the unbelieving, and it is hidden, sadly, to these leaders, to these that Jesus is interacting with here in the Gospels. And sadly, it is veiled to many today as they read Scripture with no profit to their soul. And these leaders then are blinded by their unbelief, which is fueled by their pride, their love for the things of this world, their love for their own glory, a love for their own glory that kept them from seeking the glory of God in Christ. And it is a blindness that is in their minds, it is a darkness of mind and heart that is causing them then to reject the clear testimony of Christ. Now the reality of Christ, the reality of His person, everything that is revealed to us on the pages of Scripture is staggering. To say that the eternal Son of God, or God the Son, 
through whom everything came into being, united himself to humanity, is a staggering mystery. Indeed, not only is it a staggering mystery to all men, but it is to the mind of the Jew blasphemous. It is worthy of condemnation. Let me read to you just a few verses from John. In John chapter 10, verses 31 through 32, it says this, The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. In chapter 5, verse 18 of Matthew, he says this, For this reason, therefore, John does, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, not in truth, he's breaking their extra rules about the Sabbath, which angered them, but he was also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. In John 19, when the Jews are before Pilate and they're drumming up charges to condemn him, to, to condemn him they say this, or John records for us, the Jews answered him, being Pilate, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. So they got it, and they hated it, and they wanted him dead for it. So clearly the claim to be equal to God, and that claim coming from a man who is fully a man, is staggering, even blasphemous to the Jews. But this is precisely what Scripture claims. Words that are familiar to us in John chapter 1. He begins, this apostle does his gospel with these words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being which has come into being. He says later, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. We beheld His glory. The Christ that we encounter on the pages of Scripture is none less than the eternal Son of God who spoke into existence galaxies, rivers, and oceans, suns, and stars, everything. And yet, He stands before us as the account of the Gospels reveal to us as God who is fully encompassed in humanity. Now that's staggering. And probably the most staggering claim, really, of all of Scripture. And it is difficult for anyone to grasp and accept. But again, particularly so for a Jew. If there was one thing that set a Jew apart from all of the surrounding nations, it was this. It was their faith in only one God. It's what set Israel apart from all of the other nations. Indeed, the Shema, which Jesus had just referred to previously in his discussion or interaction with these leaders, begins with these words, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That was basic to their faith. That was basic to their understanding of God. Now, the main point in the Shema may be that 
speaking of the preeminence of the Lord, but nonetheless, it is a preeminence, even if so, even if that is the main direction of it, that includes the reality of God's singularity and His uniqueness among all of the gods of the nations which are no gods. Indeed, the very beginning of God's covenant revelation with His people begins with what? Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how revelation, that is revelation His Word given to us, begins. And all of the nations that surrounded Israel were polytheistic. In other words, they had multiple gods. They had many gods. And yet, in the sea of that kind of spiritual corruption and darkness stood Israel who worshipped the one true God of creation. And that was basic to their thinking and their identity. One God one ruler of the nations, one creator, one God that is to be worshipped and be given full allegiance by his creation and particularly his people. So for Jesus to make claims of deity, to be equal to God, is difficult in itself. But the question that Jesus lays before him and that them and that we are confronted with and that all men are confronted with is simply this. Is it true? Is it true? Is that in fact the case. Now, in reality, it was anticipated in the Old Testament. It was made evident in the life and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is to this glorious reality that Jesus draws their attention and our attention this morning in his discussion with the leaders. But as mentioned already, sadly, that for so many of them and for so many others, their pride their refusal to submit themselves to the clear revelation of God in Christ will hide the true glory of Christ, which is made abundantly clear in Scripture. Read with me verses 41 through 46, and then we'll look at this more closely. Beginning in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They answered to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then, how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Look back at verse 41, and let's notice first Christ's gracious rebuke and a probing question. His gracious rebuke and a probing question. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Again, this is the final round in this match between the leadership of Israel and the Lord Jesus. They are seeking to discredit him, but what continually happens is he discredits them. And they are made to look foolish before the people. And Jesus is here bringing this whole interaction to an end. He's closing it off in a sense saying, enough is enough. Let's bring this to a close. And he delivers essentially the knockout punch to them. Now unlike previous times where Jesus allowed them to come to him, where he allowed them to be on the offensive, Jesus now turns the table and he seeks them out. He puts them on the receiving end of a question. 
And it's worth noticing here, and I would point out how majestically the glory of Christ as the incarnate word stands out. You have in these interactions the arrayed spiritual and intellectual might of the entire nation of Israel. They're giving him the best they have. They're giving him everything they have to destroy him and to discredit him. And here he is, an untrained rabbi, one who did not go through their schools, who was not accredited by them, but by his own merits, by his own wisdom, by his own authority. And here they come to him, the arrayed might of Judaism, the religion, the apostate religion of Judaism, and he makes them look ignorant and foolish of their own scriptures every single time. He is without effort humiliating them by the sheer majesty of His piercing simplicity and wisdom as the Holy Son of God and the eternal Word of God. And the reality is that they're made to look foolish because their sin is blinding them. It's perverting them. It's not that it's not clear, but they're coming from a place of darkened reasoning. And so when they're matched up to the light and to perfect wisdom and the Holy One, there is no other outcome that could take place than that they would look foolish and He would be displayed and He would be declared to be the righteous one, the light of the world. They, in fact, are displaying minds that are suppressing the truth in un righteousness. Again, it's not that it's not clear. It is that they, along with all of unbelieving humanity, even us before we came to know Christ, refused to accept the truth. It's not that it's not clear. It is that there is a moral rebellion to the revelation of God in Christ. They were unwilling to humble themselves. Jesus said, John chapter 7, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know whether my teaching is true. If you are not willing to do his will, which they were not willing to do his will, then you will not know whether his teaching is true. And this is the case here. And it's putting them in a frustrating, frustrating position. No doubt by this point they are infuriated as they have been throughout, but it is an anger that is only increasing which the unfolding of the Gospels will reveal to us. So here they are, gathered together to make another attempt. Now Mark 12.35, which is a parallel account, tells us that Jesus went and He found them in the temple. He went and He found them in the temple, or He questioned them as He taught in the temple. Excuse me. Now the tense of the verb here, just to make note in Matthew, is such that it gives this kind of picture. That either the Pharisees, right after their last interaction, kind of scuttled off to the side and huddled up again in a council of how they might come with another attack, or else they went off somewhere else in the temple area and Jesus later found them. It's hard to be certain of how long after the previous interaction, uh, how much time had uh, transpired before this question took place. But the point is simply this, that as they're counseling together again of how they might destroy him or discredit him, Jesus goes on the offensive and he asks them a question. He seeks them out as it were. And again, he's bringing this futile attempt of them to discredit him to a close. He's putting an end to it. And this is designed, I think, really to be a gracious rebuke. 
you know, though he is going to expose them, though he's going to put an end to it as he has been, behind each of these is a merciful Savior who at any time would accept them if they would simply turn to him. He is at any time willing to take them if they would humble themselves and if they would come before him. He's engaging them on their own turf. He's engaging their minds. He's essentially saying, think, think, use your mind, look at your own scriptures and understand that they testify about me. If there's graciousness and there's mercy behind it, there, was, there is absolutely also truth that will act as their judgment because of their failure to repent. So he asks them a question. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And this is staggering. Jesus is laying before them really the primary issue. He's getting right to the heart of it. Unlike these Pharisees who are beating around the bush, who are walking in deception and lies and trying to come with all of these hypocritical angles, they're wearing a mask, they're wanting to come with one face, but really their intentions have another design. Jesus skips right past all of that. He gets right to the issue. The issue is about who is the Messiah? Who is the Christ? Of course, the reality is, the real question is, Am I the Christ? Am I the Christ? Am I the Messiah? Am I who I'm claiming to be? And of course, everything is designed to point to that very truth. And this has been the topic of discussion throughout his ministry. Who is this man? Who is it? You'll remember back in chapter 16, Jesus asked his disciples. He said to them, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And of course they reported, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say one of the prophets, and so forth. That was what was buzzing around. Who is this man, the Christ, Jesus? Who is he? When he came into Jerusalem, clearly the people thought that he was the Messiah, They hailed him as such. And so it says in chapter 21, we saw this. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the one that John the Baptist pointed to. Clearly the issue is then, who is this man? Who is he? Is he the one promised? Again, the entire ministry of John the Baptist was designed to point to this very thing, to authenticate him as Christ. But they refused to submit to that. That was what he dealt with back in verse 23 of chapter 21. They questioned his authority, and he took them right back to where? To John the Baptist. Where did John the Baptist's authority come from? Then I'll tell you. You can't answer me that, then I won't answer you. But you know clearly what John was saying. That's why you have to reject his authority because he was pointing to me. And if you accept his authority, then you have to accept his message which would declare me to be the Christ and would declare you to be wrong. So that's the issue on the table. That's what's going on. And that's what Jesus is addressing right out of the bat, out of the cage with his question. So he begins by asking a general question. He says, whose son is he? Whose son is he? Now this is really an obvious question and any Jew would have been able to answer it. 
This is the testimony, as you will remember, that has already come out of the mouth of two blind men twice when they held him as the son of David once right before he came into Jerusalem, once back in chapter 9. But right before he came into Jerusalem, chapter 20, the crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. So that testimony was already given. If you remember, even from a Gentile woman, back in Matthew 15, a Canaanite woman, she held him as the son of David. It was a question among the crowds in chapter 12, 23. Is this the son of David? Is this the one that we should be looking for and waiting for? And again, it was the clear acclamation when he came into Jerusalem. So that was the issue, and clearly the crowds believed he was the son of David. Others throughout his ministry recognized him as the son of David. They knew that that was at the heart of the messianic hope, that one would come who would be the promised son of David. And just by way of reminder, where does that promise come from? It comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you'll remember, God gave to David... A promise that one was going to come and was going to sit on his throne forever. He says this, When your days are complete, verse 12, You will lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That was foreshadowed in part by Solomon, but Solomon did not fulfill that promise. Why? His kingdom did not last forever. And so there was a promised son. There was a promised descendant of David that was going to come who was going to sit on David's throne over his people. That was their messianic hope. It was the hope of the prophets. It's what they continually looked forward to. I'm not going to go through all of these, but I want to give you just a picture of this. Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 34. God speaking to his people says this in verse 23. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them, and he will feed them himself, and he will be their shepherd. He will be their shepherd. Ezekiel 37. He says this, My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. Jeremiah had the same hope. Jeremiah chapter 23 says this, verses 5 and 6. Let me just read it to you. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. David's descendant was going to come. David's descendant was going to sit on the throne. That was at the heart of their messianic expectation. They understood that. Matthew's gospel begins with this this is the central burden. The opening verse of Matthew is this. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why does Matthew begin that way? Who is he writing to? He's writing to Jews. 
primarily to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah and he begins right off the bat by saying he is the son of David. He is the promised one. He is indeed even the fulfillment of the promised one in the covenant with Abraham. With the covenant of Abraham. So Jesus asked them, and they said, whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. This is, of course, the obvious answer. This is who Christ was to be. So they understood that. They understood that. And the immediate issue here then, as was already said, is the issue of identification. Not simply the fact that the Scriptures tell us to anticipate the Son of David, but how do we identify Him when He comes? That's the issue. How do we identify Him? In other words... Whether Jesus is the fact, the promised son of David, as the blind man, the Canaanite woman, and the crowds have already confessed, is the issue. Is he the one to be identified as the son of David? That's where he's driving them. So that is the pressing matter. And one could think that when they said that, Jesus could simply press them on this and say something like, as he did at other points in his ministry, well then why don't you believe that I am he? Based on my words and based on my works, based on my life, why don't you believe that I am that promised son of David as has already been testified? Or you could expect that maybe he would simply make a direct statement similar to as he did to the woman at the well and simply say, I who stand among you am he. I am that son of David. I am he. But he doesn't do that. He goes in a completely different direction and one that is completely unexpected to them and certainly the readers of Matthew's Gospel. Now, in one sense, Jesus is still going to address the issue of identity, but he's going to broaden it far beyond the categories that they were used to thinking in. They thought of sonship exclusively in terms of physical descent. And in a very real sense, it is physical descent, and it has to be physical descent. The son of David David had to be of the physical lineage of David. That was integral to the promise that was given to him. That's why Matthew and Luke include extensive genealogies. Matthew is establishing Joseph as the legal and the rightful uh, father of Jesus, the legal father of Jesus that establishes his legal right in the line of David. And Luke establishes Mary as in the physical line of David. So through Matthew and Luke, through Joseph and Mary, he has both the legal lineage and he has physical lineage to the throne of David in fulfillment of the promise. Now the aspect of sonship, however, is essential in order to be Messiah. He had to be from David to be the rightful heir to the throne. But there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. He could be nothing less than the physical descendant of David, but he has to also be something much, much more than a human king. So he asked them another question. And this is going to throw them for a loop. He begins by simply asking them about a familiar text of Scripture. He says, how then, you got that right, we understand that's the messianic hope. He has to be the physical lineage of David. But then he says, how then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my feet until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Now it's really hard to imagine how absolutely stunning this question would be to them. Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 110, which was clearly accepted as a messianic psalm. It was a messianic psalm, one that looked forward to this Messiah who was going to come. 
And though the words would have been very familiar to them, and the question seems rather obvious, it was an observation that they had never seriously grappled with or its implications. In fact, they are showing here the same superficial understanding of Scripture that he confronted the Sadducees on. How then could there be no resurrection if he says, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Look at your Scriptures. And essentially, he's saying the same thing now to these Pharisees. Look at your scriptures. Look at what God has said. Think about it. Consider it. Don't rest in a superficial understanding of what you have before you. Now, they didn't have, however, a category for all that is implied in this verse. Now, let's flip back just for a moment to Psalm 110, and let's just briefly look at that. Flip back to Psalm 110 so you can see it with your own eyes. Psalm 110. The opening words, which Jesus quoted for us. The Lord says to my Lord, but actually before we go to there, look at probably in your Bible, after it has a bold heading, Psalm 110, it might give a description of it. It says this, a psalm of David. A psalm of David. Now that's very essential. That in fact was a part of the inspired text. That's not something added in. It's in there. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew, it just continues on, a psalm of David, and then it goes right into the psalm. It's separated out for us, uh, so we can see that as uh, we can be identified by the author of it. But it is a part of the psalm. It is a part of the inspired text. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. And he will shatter the chief men over a broad country. This is a ruler who is going to come, who is going to be great. Now let's just make a few observations here briefly. Jesus, in referring to this psalm, affirms as they would have that it was written by David. And He affirms that it was prophetically looking forward to the Messiah who was to come. Not only that, but Jesus adds these words that David said these things, what? What does he say? In the Spirit. He said these things in the Spirit. In other words, this is by divine inspiration. These are not David's words. These are words that come from God, the Spirit. And this is a very important point to note because some liberal Jewish scholars and liberal scholars in general today want to deny that this is David who wrote it and say rather that it was written about David. Why? Because if David wrote it, then there are obvious implications there that have to be grappled with that they refuse to see. So notice simply that Jesus affirms it and that it came from the Spirit of God. Notice secondly that although the psalm was written by David, David cannot be the subject of it. David foreshadowed many aspects of the one spoken of. In other words, David says the Lord was at his right hand in Psalm 16.8. The Lord gave David victory over his enemies in 2 Samuel 22. The Lord subdued the people under David in Psalm 144.2. So these things were foreshadowed in David, but David cannot be the subject here. He cannot be the subject here. The opening statement establishes the fact that David is not speaking of himself, and it's not someone else writing about David. 
It is, in fact, David himself speaking, and he says, The Lord says to my Lord, The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter. David is referring to another. He's referring to someone else. And he is addressing him as Lord, and he's addressing one who will have a future kingdom. Now, there are particularly two features of the psalm that are messianic that stand out. The first, which we're going to come back to, is that David is referring to one greater than himself. Secondly, that this future king will also be a priest. That is explained to us in Hebrews. And that is something utterly unique. The king was not allowed to function as a priest. It is that disobedience that caused God to rip the kingdom away from Saul in the Old Testament. And it is that very act of disobedience that caused him to judge Uzziah, the king of Judah. But in the Messiah, these two things will be brought together. Now, while there's much to say in this psalm about that and in terms of the Messiah, Jesus is focusing only on one part, the first statement. The Lord said to my Lord. That's the key phrase. That's what he's drawing our attention to. Now, in the Greek, and this is important in this case, the word for Lord is the same Lord. You're probably familiar with it. It's kurios. That's, that's the word for Lord. It's the Lord said to my Lord. In the Hebrew, it's a different case. There are two different terms that are used for Lord. If you'll notice in your Bibles, the first one is probably all in, in all caps. That's what the translators of the Hebrew text have done to signify that the, the term behind that is Yahweh, that covenant name of the Lord. You'll notice the second one is just written with a capital L. That's because it comes from the term Adonai, Adonai which we'll discuss in just a moment. The first term, then, is clearly referring to God. The God Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the creator of the ends of the earth, the God who has revealed Himself to His people, who has called them out, formed them as a nation, and given them promises. That is the God who is speaking. The God who has delivered them from Egypt. The second term, Adonai, is a more general word. It can be used of a husband, it can be used of a master, a servant, angelic visitors, even of Pharaoh himself. Sometimes it appears together with Yahweh in terms of Abraham says in Genesis 15 2, O Lord God. And at other times, it speaks of God directly, such as Joshua says, He is the Lord, the Adonai of all of the earth, referring to God. Now, just as an interesting footnote here before we move on, the Jews, out of a superstitious reverence for the name of God that didn't, unfortunately, match up in their life, that reverence, would take the words of Yahweh, which is all consonants, and they added the vowels of Adonai to create the word, do you know? Jehovah. Jehovah. So Jehovah became a replacement word for them, a replacement term for the name of God. But both of those terms were clearly used to refer to the God of Israel. Now here, David is using the term Adonai in a way that implies equality and co-authority and glory and a sharing of the throne of God. Which is exactly how Christ is presented to us. Let me give you just one, one verse here and there's so much more that could be said. But listen to Matthew or Revelation 5.13. This is the praise that's going on in heaven, as it were. He says, In every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne, that is the Father, and to the Lamb who is with him, blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. 
And that's how David's using these terms here. He's saying, Yahweh and Adonai who is with him on his throne, who is at that time receiving this message. That's how he's using it here. And notice here then this, that Messiah already exists when David wrote that. He doesn't say he will say to that. He's speaking to one who is at the present time with God on his throne, saying he said this. This is a promise made to one who already exists, who already is, and who already exists in a unique relationship to Yahweh, who is on the throne with him long before his coming. And who existed before David. It's very similar, in fact, to John the Baptist, who said of Jesus, uh, of Jesus that he's unworthy to untie his sandals. He says, because he existed before me, he's of higher rank. Well, in fact, John the Baptist was born first. What he's saying, he's speaking there of the eternal nature of Jesus. And this is essentially what David is recognizing here in this psalm. This is one who already exists, and he is one that is greater than I. Now, this is forcing them to think, then, of the nature of the Messiah in the category of divinity, of God, of a divine being. They have to be forced to that. They can't escape it. This is not one who's simply a man, and it's not an angel, Hebrews 1.13. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the angels. He's something more. He's something more. He's one who shares the throne with God. Now, there's hints of this in the Old Testament. We won't turn to all of these. Micah 5.2, Zechariah 2.10-11, These are texts that clearly speak of God, but refer to Him in a way that can only be taken as also one who is in human flesh. They will pierce, look on me whom they've pierced. God is spirit, He cannot be pierced if He doesn't have flesh. His goings, though in Bethlehem, were from long ago, from eternity past. There were hints at this, but it was never that clear. There was the mysterious angel of the Lord who would appear in human form and was clearly recognized as God and speaks as such in the incident with Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22.11. In the burning bush, it was the angel of the Lord who spoke to him as God in Exodus 3.2 and other places. So there were hints of this, but they had never put these two things together. Now certainly the question then is significant. And this was confounding them. But I want you to notice something here. Notice again what Jesus says. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now here's what I want you to see. At one level, Jesus then is forcing them to recognize that this Messiah is not only physical descent. He's not only a physical descent. He's not less than that, but he's something more than that. He's something that would give him a status that David long before the appearance of Christ, would refer to him as his Lord. As his Lord. So the question is more provocative even than just saying who, that he's divine. Notice again the last part of the question. How is he his son? How is he his son? In other words, Jesus is driving them to think of the Messiah in terms of sonship, but not merely sonship that is of a physical descent. He's expanding that category in their minds. He's expanding their thinking about sonship. He is a son, but in a way that's not merely physical. In other words, how can he be David's son and David's Lord? How are we to understand sonship in relation then to the Messiah? Well, Peter has already supplied the answer, hasn't he? You have to turn there, you know it. 
in chapter 16, 16 of Matthew, when Jesus asked them that and he gave the, the, uh, the statements of the crowds, then Peter says, you are the Christ, Messiah, the son of the living God. You're the son of the living God. That's who the Messiah is. You're the promised son of David. Yes, but you're also the son of God. Sonship is something that's much larger than just physical descent in a Messiah. And this is what Jesus has been laying before them and lays before all men, but they refuse to accept it. Peter got it, though he didn't yet fully understand it. Jesus said it back in 11, 27, nobody knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son God uh, wills to reveal Him and so forth. He proved it by His works and now He points them to a specific text and He pushes them in that direction. And there's no escaping the implication. And the fact is, it's clear. It's clear. The difficulty laid before them and before men is resolved if there will but yield and believe everything that Christ fulfilled in Scripture. It's not that He didn't fulfill it. It's not that it's not clear. It's not that they weren't able to say it. It's not that we can't go back and test those passages and look at it in the life of Christ. That isn't the issue. But they wouldn't yield to it. They wouldn't submit. John said at the end of his gospel, these things were written that you might believe. He did many more things, but these things I record to you that you might believe. That you might believe. Because it's clear. Because it's clear. This is the reality of Christ proclaimed by the apostles. The rest of the New Testament explains the unfolding glory of Christ that was revealed in the Old Testament. His appearing, His resurrection is now revealed from heaven by the Spirit. So they're stumped by the question. But there's no need to be if they simply would believe Scripture. And if anybody is struggling with that, if anybody here is struggling with that in reality to understand that, it is clearly the clear revelation of Scripture, then the appeal is to humble yourself and consider rightly the evidence of the life of Christ. The evidence of the life of Christ. To stop resisting Him. But they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't stop guarding the gates of their empty religion and their proud refusal to humble themselves before God. There's no reason to remain in the dark, beloved. None. Now, that being said, let's notice the second point here, and then I want to wrap up quickly. Christ's glory is hidden then by the proud and the unbelieving. Look at what he does in verse 46, and we're going to flip back up to verse 44 in just a minute. Verse 46 he says, no one was, and we'll notice secondly, Christ's glory is hidden by the proud unbelief. Verse 46, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Basically, they were being humiliated and silenced, and they said, enough of that. We don't want to go through that again. It is possible that for some, they left contemplating the truthfulness of what was just said, but the reality is that for most, they did not. And we know that because of the unfolding of the Gospels. Jesus is going to indict them in chapter 23 for their failure to humble themselves before God and for living in hypocrisy. Later, they're going to come with the crowd of Judas and drag him off in the night. And John 18.3 records the Pharisees when they're there. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't accept it. They wouldn't accept it. Mark says that the crowds, Mark 12, 37, enjoyed listening to him, kind of like in Ezekiel 33, read it on your own. It says they loved listening to the prophet, but they never did what he said. Unfortunately, that would be the case for many of the crowds. They admired him, but they did not worship him. This demonstrates the sober and reality of sin's blinding effects 
on the heart and the mind of man. Now that said, in the last probably 10 minutes or so, I want to do this. I want to conclude by drawing out several of the glorious realities of Christ's statement. Several glorious realities of Christ's statement. Now each of these is worthy of a sermon and explanation. I'm going to do little more than mention them. But let them come together. And maybe more could be added. Let them come together in your mind and understand the greatness of what Christ is saying to them and to us. And how that should strengthen our faith and increase our worship. The first one is this. And it's already been mentioned. I'll say it again. This is the, unfolds for us the glorious reality of the incarnation of the Son of God. This is such a common point of our confession that we can too often and too easily forget the wonder of it. Now for that reason, you have the quote that you do in the front of your bulletin. I'm going to pull out just a part of it. By J.I. Packer, I think he states this well. This is the real stumbling block of Christianity. It is here that Jews and Muslims, Unitarians, Jehovah's Witness, and many of those who feel the difficulties concerning the virgin birth, the miracles, the atonement, and the resurrection have come to grief. It is from misbelief, or at least inadequate belief, about the incarnation that difficulties and other points in the gospel story usually spring. But once the incarnation is grasped as reality, those other difficulties dissolve. In other words, there's no problem with the atonement, the crucified, risen Savior that can atone for the sins of the world. The issue of the resurrection isn't really the problem once you grasp the reality that God became man in Christ. The miracle's no problem. Would we be surprised that He who spoke all things into existence would calm a storm and feed thousands? Is that really a big deal? If He is the Son of God, the issue we first must wrestle with is who is He? Is He God in the flesh? This is the testimony of Christ. This is the testimony of Scripture. And it is a glorious reality that we proclaim that is foolishness to the mind of the unbelieving. Listen to the glory of this by Paul. Again, words you're familiar with. Have this attitude of yourself that was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the glory of the incarnation that God created man in his image then became a man to reveal himself and redeem fallen creatures. That's first, the wonder of the incarnation. Note secondly, the glorious wonder of God as a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Although it was not fully developed and certainly none who was standing there in the original hearing, even his disciples would have fully understood it at that point. It is nonetheless... Present in the Old Testament, in our text, and would clearly be soon, understood soon after the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit. That God is a trinity. He is the Lord in this text, who's the, the Lord of David, who's in full partnership and sharing authority and glory with Yahweh. Now the full reality of this is most powerfully expressed, I think, in the statement, the phrase, Lord of Lords, Lord of Lords. In fact, this phrase is used two times in the Old Testament to speak of God, 
Deuteronomy 10.17, Psalm 36.3. One time in 1 Timothy 6.15, Lord of Lords, and it refers there specifically to the Father. It's used twice, however, in Revelation to speak of Christ. Revelation 17.14 and 19.16 when He returns. Clearly making Him equal with God, which is, again is exactly the point He's making there in Psalm 110. There's an equality there, yet there is a distinction of persons, but an equality of glory and power. The exclusive term Yahweh, set in contrast to Adonai in Psalm 110, is also used, Yahweh, to refer to Christ particularly, such as in John chapter 12, verses 38 through 41, looking back to the vision that Isaiah saw in the temple when he saw the glory of the Lord, i.e. Yahweh. He was referring there to Christ's own glory. He is one with Yahweh. He is the Son of God. He is God the Son and to God the Father. And it was the appearing of Christ that caused the concept of monotheism within Judaism to have to be expanded. What do you do? There is only one God, and yet we clearly have a distinct person who is God. There was no question about that. How are we to understand Him? We understand Him as a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. This is the one name then that we are to baptize in. The name singular of who? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. This is the God who is proclaimed. The God who is three persons. And that is an overwhelming fact. There is no religion of men. There is no, even among the other three, what are called monotheistic religions. And we would say Christianity is not like them. Judaism and Islam are said to be the other two monotheistic religions. But they are different. They do not have a son who is God. They do not have a spirit who is God. They do not have three persons. This is clearly, however, what is revealed to us by Christ and in the Old Testament and in the life of Christ and in through the apostles. One God and Father, Son, and Spirit. Third, it reveals to us the incarnation. It points us to the Trinity. Third, our glorious hope and the sovereign points us to our glorious hope and the sovereign authority and ultimate victory of God in Christ. Or you could say this. It points us to the sovereign authority and ultimate victory of the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what the apostles proclaimed. Listen to it. I'm going to do little more than just read the text, but listen. Ephesians chapter 1, speaking of the glory of God and salvation and redemption and then looking to the glorious power that raised Christ from the dead. He said... That in, in order that his raising is showing his surpassing greatness and raising from the dead, which he brought about in Christ in the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Think of Psalm 110. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things to the church which is His body and the fullness of Him who fills all. Who is the Lord of the church? He is the one through whom all things are put in subjection to His feet. He is the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings. We don't have time, but I want to mark down in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 15. What is the glory? He says, look, after everything has been subjected to Christ, everything has been subjected to Christ, and promised, as was promised to him, then 
Christ is going to take that kingdom and all things subjected to him and he's going to subject himself back to God the Father so that God might be all in all. And that is the glorious completion of redemption that we read about in Revelation 21 and 22. The fact is that God wins. His kingdom will be established. This is what Christ is essentially telling them and us. That's what the psalm is looking forward to. He is sovereignly in control of His creation. And we who know Him will be with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. And those who do not will be cast out and forever and judged. It is His kingdom. And it will be established. It will be established. Number three. Number four. The glo- it points us to the glorious reality of the resurrection and the coming kingdom. He says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. In light of Christ coming to death, in light of Christ coming death, the reality that death could not hold him is not surprising because he is the one in whom is life. It points us to the reality of the resurrection and the resurrection points us to the great reality of his coming kingdom. Listen to this in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Read this quickly. He says, It was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He said before that, Death could not hold him. Because God had promised that he would not be abandoned to Hades and he would not suffer decay. He is the one who was raised. He is the one who is returning. Our resurrection is certain in his. Number five, it declares Christ as our mediator who stands in the presence of God for us. Romans 8.34 says that Christ is at the right hand of God. He makes intercession for us. Stephen, when he was being stoned in Acts 7.56, says, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Hebrews 8, it means that he is at the right hand of God as our high priest. Let me read that to you. Hebrews 8.1. The main point in what he said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken a seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of the, in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. It refers to us that Christ is our mediator at the right hand of God. Number six, two more. It affirms, it affirms to us the glorious reality of the forgiveness of our sin. Listen to how this is used in Hebrews chapter 10. By this will we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, think of Psalm 110, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all times those who are sanctified. This reality points us to the certainty of the forgiveness of our sin, the certainty of the resurrection, the certainty of the kingdom that will not fail to be established on earth, to the incarnation and to God as a trinity. And lastly, it declares that He is the glorious sovereign over the church. Revelation 1.16, and this is the last one. In his right hand he held the seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. 
This is the Lord of the church. The stars in his right hand are the churches which are explained to us in 2 to 4. This is the sovereign Lord. He's pointing it to them and he's saying, look, these are the very glorious truths that are laid before you as the leaders of the nation, but you are going to reject them for yourselves because you refuse to believe your own scriptures and your own God who stands before you. They refused to humble themselves. They rejected God's purpose for them as a nation and they missed his forgiveness, his grace, and his kingdom. And they missed it because they wanted to hold on to the empty cisterns of their vanity and man's praise, their love of man's praise. But Christ stands before us as this Savior. And He warns us from heaven and He comforts us from heaven by His Spirit through His Word. And it is that Christ that we proclaim in this table. Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six through the Lord's table, we proclaim His death until He comes. We proclaim... The death and the returning, the resurrection and the returning of Him who is at the right hand of God, who is our mediator, in whom we have forgiveness of sins, Him who is ruler of the nations, Him who is judge of the nations, Him who is God, Him who is our Lord. That's what we proclaim. That we've embraced Him by faith and we've committed our lives to Him, we've placed our hope in Him, and we wait for His return. Let's pray and prepare our hearts for His coming to the table. Father, we thank you for giving us your Son, our Lord Jesus. We thank you for your glory. Glory that is revealed to us on the pages of Scripture. That is revealed to us through your death and through your resurrection. That is revealed to us in all of the glorious promises we have in you. Prepare our hearts now as we worship you around your table remembering these great truths and these great realities. I pray for any here who may not know you, have not bowed their knee to you as Lord, who don't rejoice in these truths and find these very truths as the thing which excite their heart and encourage them and give them strength to carry on and motivate them toward obedience that you would today grant them life and repentance. And for the rest of us who know you, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our hearts by faith as we remember these great truths and these elements. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.